Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Temple, Congregation Anche Men. And joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anche Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Shekhtar Day School of Long Island. It's great to see you guys. A shout out, big shout out to Machana Raman, the Berkshires. Uh, and uh, we are being broadcast, we hope, uh, recorded. <laughs> Uh, for this week's Parsha, we are recording on, a, on on day one, day actually day two of camp. Camp started yesterday. So we're, we want to wish at the beginning uh, to all of our friends and to the Chanichim and to the Tzavet of Machane Ramah in the Berkshires of a wonderful, wonderful summer. We look forward to seeing you, hopefully. When we come up, maybe we'll bring a, a Parsha talk live there, the three of us. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. I want to send special, special greetings to Rose Machane Beth. Shia Kalmanowski. Love you. Love you, Shaiki. Shia Kalmanowski. Okay. As long as we're talking about Ramah, we have to refer to it by its affectionate name, Machanenu Shalano. Machanenu Shalano. Big shout out Tommy Shemesh. Also, Miriam. Tommy Shemesh. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, last year they, we were. Do, do you know that they did a. Parsha talk the next generation show. No, yeah, with Allison Joseph. Seriously, yeah. they 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 had kids play our roles. Okay, it's I have to say that was so touching, so honor, so so. I hope I hope they're going to do another Parsha talk the next generation with kids playing the the roles of the three of us. Okay, and we we could give each other you know our own uh, nicknames or proclivities, but. Let's, let's stick with the text, okay? We're, we have a double Parsha. We have a double Parsha this week. Hukat Balak. Uh, we're catching up with Israel, uh, which is uh, in Israel, they're reading just Balak this week. Uh, Hukat starts out with the, the rules pertaining to Para Duma. We read that Parsha on the Shabbat Para, the Sabbath of the cow. Uh, and we, we may have talked about it in the past. The idea that that people go through a um, a, a a sense of defilement or actually a, a state of defilement with contact uh, with the dead, the corpse being the prime, you know, the, the most powerful agent of uh, toxicity, as it were, impurity, and that there needs to be uh, a cleansing method, a ritual of cleansing or as they describe in the scholarly literature, a detergent. It's called a detergent, okay? That well, you... it's a double cleansing. Because you have to go through the ritual both on the third and the seventh day. Okay, and when do you get sprinkled? The third and the seventh day. Third and the seventh day. You get sprinkled with eau de red heifer, okay? A special... Well, my show, they serve buffalo chips at the Kiddush this week. <laughs> <laughs> we... This is, you know, what would be the appropriate menu for, you know, hukat? I know that... You know what, actually, it's funny that you say red heifer, because that is what we always say in English, but isn't a heifer... A young. A young, but a para, like I think an egel or an egla is a heifer, and a para 
which is what the paraduma is, is a full grown. But well, I'm, I'm pointing you know. the JPS translation here, and it says, "Instruct the Israelite people to bring you a red cow without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which no yoke has been laid." Okay, so red probably means rust colored. You know, it's not. You know. So David Marcus said that it really means brown. Brown. Because there is no biblical Hebrew word for brown, so they used Adom, which is better suited to a cow's color than red. Indeed. Right, but, but and I think this is correct, it's, it's well known that, um, uh, maybe, we, maybe we even talked about this a few weeks ago in, uh, in, in uh, Shlachnachal, when we talk about the Techelet, it's well known that languages, ancient languages, and their color words, they had very fewer words for color that covered a wider range. Um, and and so um, Tehelet could be purple, could be blue, could even be green. And and Aduma, I think, also carries a wide range. But the one thing that I would say about that, that um, I don't see how you can tell this story without thinking that there's a blood association. Of course. This, this, is, a, um, this is a purification from contact with death so the the color of the cow being blood colored it just it it seems right but ultimately the cow is insignificant because it's rendered to ash well you take also not have a a a red color cedar wood hyssop and crimson stuff okay those things are thrown into the pile with the the carcass of the red cow so what what you're trying to do is create the the most potent concentrated mixture of redness okay and then pulverize it into um, a powder mix it with maim chayim you know not holy water but live water yeah yeah fresh water fresh stone water and and create a kind of mixture that is the purificatory agent it all makes sense to me so i think this is right and the uh and the 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 it's true, of course, that the ash is going to be gray. It's not going to be red. But what this amounts to is, I mean, I'm I'm poetically imagining here. Um, it, it seems to amount to bilahamavet lanetzach in the words of of Isaiah, death being swallowed up. So the person has encountered death, but you have to take all that concentrated death color, burn it up, sprinkle it away. And that's going to bring the person, the, the person who's touched death, back into the realm of, if, of life. If you associate it with blood, then blood represents life. So, in effect, you're restoring the contaminated person to life by sprinkling exactly. life force on them. Not right. only is blood, but you have water. So the two the two agents of life are are part of this in the most concentrated form. Now, you can't concentrate water, but but Maim Chayim is, a, is obviously a special category of water. And um, and the, the, the concentrated ash redness uh, mixed with a large quantity of water will give you a, a you know, an effective supply of red, red cow water detergent that a few sprinkles will, will last. Right. That, that, that they should market this as a new detergent in the market. There's Tide, there's all, there's like... Uh, and red, red cow, red cow detergent. And red cow ash. Red cow ash. <laughs> okay. Well, on the, on the serious part of it, though, I would say that, that and, and I know we've talked about this before, you know, the experience of death or the experience of defilement, you know, in, in, in any way, 
uh, through either the experience of a violent act or or something you know akin to that um, requires some kind of set of rituals to go from one state to another state um, and and of course you know we have a whole architecture of rituals in mourning to take us from that that state of loss to the state of going back to life but you know the 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 encounter with a dead body or the proximity to a dead body does shake you to the core if you are i guess attuned or attentive to it i mean i i don't see how anybody can ever get used to it unless you are so detached from your your emotional life i mean it well you ever seen the movie tell- bullet no so great movie from the 60s steve mcqueen who is a cop and one of the problems his girlfriend has with him is his callous regard. He's a homicide detective. His callous, seeming callous regard for death, disregard for life. Yeah, life, right? Because he confronts death almost every day, and he built up defense mechanisms which, to an outsider, seem quite callous. Yeah. So you can, I think, you can get used to it. Well, I don't know. I, look, in in our business, we 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 come into contact with it, but I, you know, we, I'm in contact with morticians and funeral directors on a, on a regular basis, and they're in contact with it on a daily basis. Um, and you know, yeah, they're they're jaded and they 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 are used to it. But I can tell you that there are sometimes that even they, you know, as grizzled and sober as they are. Uh, they they some they have some there are some cases that really throw them too. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, I you know had congregants, for example, talk about their distress um, in being medical students with the kind of because people build up a kind of a black humor thing about it, and and the the, the cadavers that they use, um, they they sort of build up that that. Uh, protective you know uh attitude that is less than reverential but i know that the people for example who do the hebra kadisha you know are extremely reverent absolutely about, about they have to be they have to be reverent and 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 that's why i mean and you know they're they're mindful of the holy nature of their work okay so so we we've moved from that chapter uh, can we talk for a second about about the death of you know on the on the subject of death? Okay, we've got a lot of death in this. A lot question. of death in this part in Chukat, not the Balak part, but there's a little bit maybe. The Israelites arrive in a body at the wilderness of Tzin on the first month and the first new moon, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. That's it. That's all we hear. No mourning. No, she died at the mouth of God, at the kiss of God. No, she was beloved by the people. And then the very next verse tells us that um, there was no water for the community. They joined up against Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with them, Moses. If we had, only we had perished when our brothers perished at the insist, instance of the Lord, why have you brought the Lord's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die there? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There is not even water to drink. 
the desert is a place of death. They've just had this whole, you know, in the Torah we have this this whole chapter set of laws about life and purification and contact with that, and now they're in contact with death, and there's no water for them, and they're afraid they're going to die. Well, so there's an irony here. If there's no water, they can't make the mixture for the ashes of the red heifer. Isn't that something? Yes. And so how do they purify themselves from their contact with the death of Miriam? I don't think that that's what they're worried about. No. Well, so it occurred to me today when I was looking over this is that we hear the Israelites complain over and over again about certain wants in their community. They don't have water. They don't have food. But you never hear Aaron and Moshe complain about it. And it makes you wonder, are they living in a different world? Or is that just to heighten how ungrateful the Israelites actually are? They, the, the Bible doesn't record their complaints. They complain about the people. They say, oh, the people are complaining. Again. But, you know, you would think that, I mean, I think we've been in situations, perhaps on hikes, camping, whatever, where people complain about, not having water it's generally not a complaint that only one person has so so when you're the leader of such a group and and the group is really tired and and on the verge your job is to hold the the the, the group together i can remember i can remember as a roche da okay where uh you know we had a whole group my whole ada i took them to the forest for a for you know this happened three years in a row i took them what we call the Linat Shabbat, and Fridays, you know, we worked so hard to get everything, and by by the afternoon, everyone was exhausted, and people were not doing what they were supposed to do, and and they were complaining, whatever. My job was to make sure that we got to Shabbat and make sure we had all the food prepared and to, to help, you know, obviously it's not Moses here. It's like, come on, everyone, let's, let's get with the program. We gotta, we have a job to do. That's what, you know, so I, I don't have the luxury this is what I'm saying here. They don't have the luxury to mourn, Moses and Aaron. They don't have the luxury to give complaints, right? And, and anyone in leadership knows this, that, that you certainly don't have the luxury to complain to other people, you know, in, 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 that, in the echelon so, uh, more than you. And what you need to do is kind of hold it in. And so compl- in that light, Elliot, that explains then the great sin that, the rock because this is the one time where moses complains directly to the people right all the other times he's complaining to god about how wicked the people are okay so so let's take it in the text go ahead no you you continue on this i just want to make one observation after we're done with this all right so moses and aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they fell on their faces The presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and your brother Aaron take the rod and assemble the community, and before their very eyes order the rock to yield its water. Okay? Dibartem elasela leenehem venatan memav otsetem lemaim minasela. Thus you shall provide, produce water for them from the rock and provide drink for the congregation and their beasts. Next verse, 9. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we get water for you out of this rock? 
Out of this rock. Out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Out came copious water, and the community and the beast drank. And because of that, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation to the land that I have given them. Those are the waters of Merivah. Ba 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 ba. Okay. So this is this is it. This is the great Christ. Everything is lost in a moment, and there's so many layers to this story. I, you know, and and I, in in doing some research about this, every single commentary has a different kind of angle to it, a different approach to it, a different a different reason. What did he do to deserve? What was this the great sin? And a b is the punishment. And we're calling it a punishment here. God's reaction to it is that punishment, you know, um, a uh, appropriate. Jeremy, you were going to add something. About a related topic, not, not about this question. Uh, I'll, I'll hold it off for a second. Okay. Um, so there's, there's a, a few ways to think about this question. Um, d- does... Uh, it, is, is is you know most there's a few things that Moshe is supposed to have done wrong, right? That the, the, the commentary literature will say one is he's supposed to speak to the rock, supposed to make this complete, wonderful, spectacular miracle, but he strikes the rock instead. Instead of an act of speech, it comes out with an act of violence. But the weakness of this interpretation is that this is this appears to be the second retelling of the almost exact same incident has happened in Shmot. Uh, in, in Parshat B'Shalach, where he's told to smack the rock. So, you know, it's not it's not obvious. Either this is one story told twice, and there really isn't anything wrong with smacking the rock, and that's, uh, you know, or it's just two different things, that, that smacking the rock is the way you do it, and he's and he successfully done it in the past. He, he yells at the people, and he calls them rebels, and he loses his temper, and... and that's just not a, a good thing for a religious leader to do. And so maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem is, it says, shall we bring you forth water from this rock? When he should have said, the master of the world is going to perform a miracle on your behalf. And Moshe sort of arrogates to himself the, the miracleness and all those things different commentators will say. And I have, we've discussed this in the past, I have my own view that this is, that this is a kind of a Lashon Nikia, sort of a euphemistic story that Moses and Aaron are actually being punished for the the golden calf and the smashing of the tablets, which that's what I think is actually the more logical things going on here. But admittedly that you have to read between the lines to extract that one, because uh, Aaron does nothing in this story. It's absolutely nothing, and he, yet he's punished. So wh- why would, why would, what did he do wrong here? He personally didn't do anything wrong. And and Moshe, you know, smacking a rock does sound like a little bit like smashing stone tablets. That's what I think. So I want to add something here. And it's kind of curious what the reaction is to the situation. So at the end of the story, the water comes forth copiously. And Aaron and Moshe are punished by saying they will not enter the land of Israel. And the name of the place is changed to reflect the people's behavior, a place to which they'll never come back again, but still carries a kind of stigma with it. Whenever it's recalled, we were at Meriva, we know that the people are actually responsible. 
And what I would like to suggest is perhaps a different way of understanding the story is that long after the events have taken place, everyone knows that Moshe did not get into the land of Israel. And the question is why? And this is a story that can explain why he didn't get in. And it attributes the reason why he can't get in to the people. The people are actually responsible for Moses's failure. No, it, it, in the end of Deuteronomy, it says, Kim you, you, you disgraced me. You, and, and, and there is the, and right here in the text, it's, you did not sanctify me um, in, in the presence of the people. You, 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 um, you did not affirm my sanctity in the sight of the people, okay? Right, but the, what's so odd about that is look at the reaction of the people themselves. The water comes forth, and they drink heartily, and they stop complaining. Right. They so got what, what they it, wanted. So what is it that what is it that would have constituted sufficient? You know, the, the, the translation you read is to affirm my sanctity. You didn't believe in me enough or show enough faithfulness to sanctify me. To affirm in, my sanctity is affirm my sanctity is what the the the, the uh, translation has. Like what? What is it that God would have won? Is is God saying, "Dude, I was going to perform the best miracle, and you, you guys, you, you so, turned." So here, here I, I I resort to the ref Richard Elliot Friedman, who talks about this as a moment where Moses, in effect, becomes, you know, the the agent of the miracle, and Moses usurps a divine prerogative, uh, and and. Um, and uses the the staff, and the staff becomes a kind of magical instrument, uh, and that that is problematic in terms of the sense that the 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 power of the miracle is removed from God and given to a human being. So there's something I, I, very I, I compelling about that. And so, I understand the claim. However, however, there's there's a couple of big howevers on this, and and with that could be the explanation of when Moses Moses says. We will bring you forth. Me and God. So, me and Aaron. If, if, it, if it usurps the divine splendor, those two things could be used together. But there's a there's a big however here, which is to say that the plagues were uh, instituted through the staff, and the previous, the, the Exodus version of the Water in the Rock episode happened through the staff. The staff has seemed to be like, Yes, it's, it, it, you might. One might object that it seems a little uncomfortably close to a magic wand, but it has been in plenty of stories a, a perfectly good, you know, magic. What 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 would have been worse ha would have been you know. Here I want to take Moses' defense is that speaking to the rock is um, is ridiculous. <laughs> It's like it's like talking to a rock. It's like talking to a rock. You excuse, wait a second. You, you I think want, Paul Simon said something about that? You want me to talk to the rock? You want me to speak to this rock? That's ridiculous. And 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 here I I, I concur. You know, with you in, in the sense that the frustration, the frustration is 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 at its peak, and so he becomes that way, That's the point. He becomes violent. Violent so words and violent. So, with so, that. Moses here usurps God's role, not with the miracle, but by getting angry at the people. Ah. That's something that 
is properly only reserved to God, and Moses is supposed to be the defense attorney. He's supposed to bear their burden before God. And by doing what yeah. he did, in effect, he arrogates to himself the divine mandate, and that would be, a, at least that would make sense of the words, that you did not sanctify me in front of the people. But 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 there's been plenty of time where he's been angry at the people. That's what prophets do. That's what prophets do, is they yell at the people. They as Yochanan Muff said, they represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And so at this moment, the um he he he, he could perhaps be justified by yelling at them for their now, here's what I want to observe before, which I uh, I just think is um, from the very beginning of this part where Miriam dies, and parentheses, by the way, all of our, many of our listeners will have intuited this anyway, but this is the, this is the source for the idea that there was, Miriam had this miraculous well, it was the merit of Miriam that gave the water all through the, all through the, uh, all through the desert years, and then when she died, the well dried up or vanished or whatever, and so that's why the juxtaposition of Miriam's death and um, and the the complaining about the lack of of water. But you know, you you read at the beginning, the beginning of chapter twenty by Avodnei Sin. They come to the wilderness of Sin. Bachodesh Arishon is the first the the first new moon, but it doesn't say the first new moon of what, right? Here. And what is taken to be what the commentators point out is that um, it's the and, and it makes perfect sense. It's the first new moon of the 40th year. All the wandering has happened. Um, and so the Torah has basically not told us, after Parshat Shlach Lecha, in which the, the spies and the failed mission of the spies brings down a 40-year wandering in the in the wilderness, um, nothing else, there's nothing else in the Torah. <laughs> it's been completely glossed over, and we've jumped 40 years later. And it, it actually... Well, on the one hand, it makes the story of Miriam's death in the absence of water, you know, it ties them, it makes it a little a little poignant. But it also, uh, I think, you know, underlies a, a strangeness, which is that they are about to have finally arrived. They are just about at the at the at the threshold. And after forty years of wandering, which has been maintained by the divine, you know, sustenance in the form of water and in the, in the form of the manna. Um, now, you know, Miriam dies, there's no water, and they are just like plummeted. Everything has been so great, uh, and now they're just, the, the this, this uh, curveball is thrown their way, and they just fall into, into despair and complaining. Come on, guys. 40 years is about to end. Hang in there just a little bit longer, but it, it to me makes the whole the whole urgency of the episode kind of like uh, a little heartbreaking. Yeah, but but there's also one added piece to that, which of course is is there, which is that these are these are their children. These are a new generation. This is a new generation of 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 the children of the people that left Egypt. So on on the one hand, they they have they have not grown up with the humiliation of slavery. On the other hand, they've, they've certainly grown up under their parents who have complained once or twice. And they have to go through their own transition. And 
and and succeed in in um, folding into their own lives the experience of frustration and overcoming that frustration. This is right. Well, the there's an oddity here because I think later in the parsha we have the episode with the snake. Yeah. And there, as a result, thousands of people die as a result of a sin. But here, no one is recorded as dying. No. And, you know, to, to perhaps strengthen Jeremy's point, this is actually the generation that does enter the land. Yeah. Right? Because if it's the 40th year, most of them are going to be alive when they finally walk in with Joshua. So what makes them the great generation? Yeah, this is supposed to be the greatest generation. Uh, ready for ready for a real hardship that's going to come in war, and yet they're thrown into a panic. I mean, one could say that that really, you know, from, from a critical modern critical perspective, well, this doesn't actually have to be the fortieth year, and and maybe it is the same story that was told in Exodus and it's just repeated twice, um, and out out of sequence or something. But um, but it it really strikes me as uh, as as a difficulty to think that the generation that that was was brought up to be ready for the for the entrance to the land is is mighty quick to fall to pieces. All right. right here, it's worth recalling the interesting connection in in Exodus, because we have the story of the rock and then the story of Amalek, and the rock is the enemy within, and Amalek is the enemy without. Okay. We, we, we are running out of time for for the end of the Parsha. There's so much more material to talk to. So we're not gonna we're not gonna even skim this, but uh, we'll just mention that this is the second Parsha is Balak. It's a really one of the name one of the people Parshiot that's named after a person. Right. And and I guess the highlight of it is the oracles of Bilam, including the first words that are recited as a Jew walks into the synagogue, Matovu Alecha Yaakov. Mishkanotecha Yisrael, the words that are sung as uh, everyone begins their their tefillot at Machanenu. Okay. I thought that the first words that you says is when they come into synagogue. It's, What's for Kiddush today? <laughs> How do I get a seat at the back? Right? <laughs> you have to come early. So here, the, basically, Balak is a strategy of encounter. We've had. Uh, Sichon and Og already, and a few Canaanites as well, and uh, Balak, who is the um, king of Moab, uh, wants to employ this uh, this prophet for hire, Balaam, to use the weapon, the, the most powerful weapon, the word, against Israel. He fails uh, tremendously. Um, and um, and maybe it's a kind of comical uh, answer to all of this suffering, or maybe it's a, a kind of validation of what has been stead, stated to Abraham at the beginning. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I can't help but think that, that those words which are given to Abraham at the beginning of the whole story uh, come into fruition here because, you know, the, the, Bilam understands this. The, the, he understands this central truth about this people that if you curse them bad things are going to happen to you but if you bless them good things are going to happen to you. you will be blessed there will be something about that and 
in a sense, there's there's a there's a truth that that I think resounds to this day. I you know I identify anti-Semitism in this truth that nothing good comes to the anti-Semite when the anti-Semite invades curses against Israel. In fact, a lot of bad things happen to anti-Semites and culture because of anti-Semitism and because of curses against the, the, the Jewish people. Um, Bilam is, I think, a, a symbol of that. Uh, in, in 30 seconds, discuss. <laughs> Rebut. No well, well, I mean, Bilam is, uh, he is like seized with, he's no fell, he, he is, goes into a trance and his eyes are open. And, um, and so I, I think that like the image is, is I, I don't know that he comes to the recognition that, that, you know, hating the Jews is a bad thing, but God like takes a bit of a spirit possession and, and he becomes an instrument of blessing. I mean, it's, it's sort of well known that the Abraham and Bilam stories are, are a match. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of the same words and same phrases and Abraham is sent to be a blessing because he tries to be a blessing. He wants to be a blessing. That's his destiny. Bilam tries to be, wants to be an agent of cursing, but it just doesn't work because because this, this is people's got it. They got the mojo, and so you you need to uh, you get aligned to blessing when you come near them. So I would just draw our attention to another saying of Bilam that he describes the people as a people that lives apart, not reckoned among the nations. And I wonder, first of all, if that was true in Bilam's day, and even more, perhaps, if we want it to be true in our day. Because it seems that part of our journey as Jews is to figure out our place in the world, which is as old as our people. Well said. And with that, we're going to conclude this Parsha talk, first Parsha talk of the Machane Ramah summer. And the, it's almost like the 150th of our Parsha talks. So uh, we'll have a special uh, sesquicentennial celebration of our Parsha talks. In the meantime, we want to wish everybody Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. See you next week on the next edition of Parsha Talks. Oh, my God.